there is more and more of a growing awareness that this is an issue, but nobody seems to want to take it on. It's really frustrating. It just seems to come down to, well, we don't know how to start helping this issue. And to be frank, it's convenient to have this unpaid family care labor. Right now, they're providing a crucial source of unpaid labor. Hi, everyone. This is the AgeWise Podcast. Your assumptions are going to be turned somewhat upside down. Where we talk about aging well. It's an issue that nobody wants to talk about. And wisely. I was totally unfamiliar with the term caregiver. You really learn what you're capable of. I'm Jana Panaritis. Today's episode of the AgeWise Podcast is brought to you by Hero, the in-home medication manager. The only solution that automatically dispenses every dose, keeps everyone connected with a simple app, and makes sure meds don't run low. Hero, a dose of calm for the whole family. We tend to think about caregivers as being in their 40s or 50s and older. We hear about careers getting derailed and friendships falling by the wayside, casualties of this all-consuming work done by adults caring for family members or friends. But what happens when a young person is the primary caregiver for an adult? In Canada, this hidden army of caregivers aged 25 years and younger is estimated at over 1 million people. In the U.S., the figures are even higher. In 2017, there were 1.9 million young carers, as they're known internationally. Our guest today is a little older now, but she was just 26 years old when called upon to care for her grandfather, or her papu, as we say in Greek culture. Dr. Vivian Stamatopoulos is a sociologist and a professor at the University of Ontario Institute of Technology. Her research focuses on child and youth-based caregiving, and she's written several peer-reviewed articles on the subject. She joins us today from Toronto to share her experience of caring for her papu and to tell us more about this growing number of young people providing unpaid care to family members. Vivian, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So let's put this in context. Tell us a little bit about your life growing up. Do you have siblings, by the way? I do. I have an older sister. Just one sister. Just one sister. (laughs) And you grew up in Toronto, is that right? Yes, it is. Okay. Can you tell us a little bit about what your caregiving experience was like? I mean, you were 26 years old, as I said in the intro. It initially started with my my papu or my grandfather. (laughs) And essentially, I, was, uh, I had just finished my master's degree, and um, I, like most people that finished graduate school, needed a little break in between their, their master's and uh, PhD. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to work for a bit, and I had um, been working for about a year. Of course, it was right around 2008 when the recession hit, and of course, I had decided to start working in the automotive industry. Uh-huh. So I was, of course, one of the first people to be let go. Uh-huh. And it was a period where I was applying to hundreds of jobs. I couldn't get a job, and probably about a week or two before I was actually let go, my uh, papu, my grandpa, was diagnosed with prostate cancer. Mm. And then I would conveniently been let go and I couldn't find work. So I kind of just took charge of taking him to the, I think it was three times a week, the treatments at a hospital that was essentially downtown. So it was about a half an hour drive and he couldn't drive uh. because he had also around the same time been diagnosed with advanced macular degeneration, AMD. So he'd lost about 
very quickly about 85% of his vision. Oh, my. So we'd have to, at, at the same time, the cancer and then the blindness and giving up his car and then dealing with eye appointments and injections while at the same time taking him to treatments for the cancer, mm-hmm. which thankfully he um, got through. But, you know, it's, it's not just the, the driving and then the shopping and then the just dealing with the healthcare professionals because there was a language barrier. Um, what you also hear about, uh, well, millennial in my case or, or young carers, that translation issues is a big reason why they get brought into caregiving. Right. And right. Um, so that was part of it. And that took up, that was about a year of the intensive treatments. And then things slowed down and I was able to get a job after that and applied back for my PhD. And then you know, waited the year to get that program started, and then uh, then a whole other set of issues arose with my yeah yeah. <laughs> <laughs> your grandmother, right? With my grandma. <laughs> oh boy, are your parents still alive? They are alive, but you know, unfortunately, their work positions would only give them so many days off. Uh-huh. So it would be at the time where we, well, when I initially started with my grandpa, I was laid off. I right. was seen as the flexible person, so why wouldn't I step in and, and take this on instead of my parents having to take off work leaves? And, and there's only so much leave you can take, which is a larger issue yeah. for a lot of caregivers, right? So, yeah. Yeah. of course, conveniently, I was in this new flexible position of unemployment and not by my own choice. So once, once you get into it and essentially you kind of informally become assigned the caregiver and not because you're necessarily good at it per se, but because you stepped in. So, of course people hope that you continue in that role because you know <laughs> it's uh, it's time consuming and it's it's not easy as anyone knows and yeah. and I get that people have work demands and and at that point I I didn't so mm-hmm. it just kind of extended and your sister was she working as well she was working and she was you know just having kids so mm-hmm. you know nobody really wanted to bother her and I was the childless daughter the younger daughter mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. I was seen as more flexible and more able and so, so good yeah. at it Oh, apparently, right? <laughs> Secretly, not so good at it. But, you know, you, you, you do what you can. <laughs> yeah. Secretly cry at night. No. Um, <laughs> I know that it affected your life. It changed your life a lot. I wonder if you could talk about how it changed your life. And maybe, oh, entirely. Yeah, and maybe about what sacrifices you made. Oh, my gosh. Well, when I had um, started, mm-hmm. things, so things were quiet for a few years after my grandfather's prostate cancer went into remission and we got the eye issues sorted out as much as possible, but it still meant that I would have to be the new personal shopper. I took over all the banking. I took over pretty much anything that he couldn't do because he had to give up his car and he couldn't really see. And my grandmother's not mobile. Mm -hmm. So she's largely restrained to her bed because she just has really bad spinal arthritis and can't can't properly move and has had these issues for 20 years and it's just gotten worse. Mm. So really my grandfather was the main caregiver for my grandma, but now there's a lot of things he can't do. So that's where I kind of pick up that role. Uh So that was always ongoing. But when I had started back into school, I was looking at something, well, for my my PhD. So in my master's, I'd been looking at largely uh, labor. I was in political economy. I was looking at the impact of globalization on work and precarious labor in particular. Mm-hmm. So I'd started my PhD in that area. And um, I remember there was a, a girl in one of my classes who was doing some research on on young adults providing care. And I remember we, we chatted about it because I thought, oh, my God, this is fascinating. You're like me. We both did this as young adults. Mm-hmm. And then didn't really think about it. 
a couple years went by and it came time for me to pick what I was going to, well, I thought I had picked what I was going to do for my dissertation, but then I just kind of had that moment where I said, you know, this is going to be a couple years ahead of writing and doing research and this is a pretty big decision. Let me think about what's really, what's really important to me. What can I speak to? Yeah. And I started to see if there was any research written about this. And then I found this whole literature in the UK and just kind of had that, oh my gosh, moment that mm-hmm. just wasn't aware that this whole other world of young carers research and advocacy and programming was in place. So I just kind of made the decision, you know, with my faculty to just completely switch gears and say, I, I think this is what I want to do. Mm-hmm. I have this experience. I know how it affected me. So I can't even imagine what it would be like for people that are younger than me, because at least by the time I had really taken on this role, I had already applied and I'd already gotten in. Uh-huh. And I can't even imagine getting the grades high enough to the point where I needed to be to actually get into these postgraduate programs. Right. So if this was happening five, ten years before, there's no way I probably would have even made it into a master's program or a PhD program. Did you talk about it with any of your friends, what you were going through? You know, it's, it's a tricky thing because you would try, but at 26, I mean, this is the time where really you're having the time of your life. So mm-hmm. my friends were just really getting disposable income, moving out of their places, mm-hmm. most of them living downtown and just having a blast. And I just, anytime you would try to talk to them, or at least with me, they just didn't understand. And, and when I interviewed kids much younger than me, it's the same story. You almost, and I did, I just would kind of retreat and not really talk about it because it would almost be like it would, they'd gloss over. It was a mix of uncomfort because they didn't know how to broach the topic because they'd never had to be in that situation. Mm-hmm. And at the same token, I find that if I were to have these conversations, it would often be with people that were much older than me that were dealing with these very issues with their parents. Mm-hmm. And you, you often hear this, oh, you're an old soul kind of thing. I would hear this a lot from other people. And at the same token, even the kids I interview that are 15, 16, 17, they, the same kind of thing because they've had to age quicker right. than their peers, uh-huh. but also because you have more in common with people that have been through that experience and usually they're older taking care of parents. So I didn't really feel like I could talk about it. And if I could, you know, I could tell that they would kind of check out after a certain point. Didn't really understand. And then I felt like, you know, you, you get a little bit resentful without wanting to throw my friends under the bus because I love my friends but you can't help feeling like okay you clearly don't really get it you're not really empathizing and then you then you retreat and then you feel more alone and it's not the best for your mental health (laughs) as I'm sure probably most caregivers will say the same thing. Yep especially in Canada my sense is that young carers are not getting the media coverage that they're getting a little bit in the U.S. and maybe a lot more in, in the U.K. Why do you think that this is not really being discussed very much in the media in Canada? It's actually really embarrassing. Um, I've had this talk with ministry officials and uh, various government representatives who uh-huh. have actually, and very recently, called on me to come talk about my research. And it's been these meetings where I'll go And I will sit there essentially in a room full of high-level ministry professionals who are furiously writing down everything I'm saying and clearly interested. And and when we talk about it after, they'll fully admit that we know this is an issue. We've never documented it before. We're not counting it, but we know we probably should be. And we stumbled on your research, and we know we have kids like this in the programs that we provide, and not necessarily targeting those issues, but helping perhaps parents Mm -hmm. or vulnerable families. And, you know, of course, I get excited. I'm like, well, what can we do? And it's the same thing. Well, there's no money. And or we've just had a big change in the government and everything's up in the air. Mm-hmm. So everyone's very nervous 
to take on anything new when we know we've been in a period of essentially fiscal retrenchment. And at a larger level, we're not that child-friendly in Canada. Huh, that's I mean, interesting. I didn't even think about that. We're really not. You know, I think we're ranked something out of 17 out of 29 of the OECD, the wealthiest countries in terms of child rights and health and well-being. You know, we signed on to the United Nations Conventions on the Rights of the Child mm-hmm. back in, I believe, 1991. So we're on board. Um, the only country that didn't sign on was the U.S. <laughs> Yet you guys have given more media coverage to young carers, ironically. There is more and more of a growing awareness that this is an issue, but nobody seems to want to take it on. Uh And I run into this problem even when I talk to media sources and especially government sources, and it's really frustrating. It just seems to come down to, well, we don't know how to start helping this issue. And to be frank, it's convenient to have this pseudo-reserve army of reproductive, as I call it, labor, Uh because we know that there aren't enough stay at home, as there used to be in the past, mothers who took on the lion's share of this unpaid family care labor. But for a variety of reasons, in changing family types, in our aging population, and the, the lack of ability for our health care to really get on board with addressing the silver tsunami headed our way, we need that support system. And unfortunately, you don't want to draw too much attention, in my opinion, on children and youth caregivers because... Right now, they're providing a crucial source of unpaid labor that isn't available for dual earner families. Absolutely. And you can say that about the larger caregiving force in every country at every age, the hidden workforce that is saving healthcare systems all kinds of money. All kinds of money. So what sort of legal rights do non-Canadian young carers have that youth carers in Canada don't have? Well, really, the only um, benchmarks we have are the UK and Australia. So in Mm -hmm. the UK, you know, young carers have legal rights under the CARE Act. So they are essentially no different from adult caregivers in that they are legally recognized, which Mm -hmm. gives them provisioning to not only, well, at the first level, the most basic level, an assessment, which should be taken into account their needs. And second to that, then they are provided either direct payments and or access to a range of the, what is it, you know, almost 400 nonprofit dedicated young care programs wow, are there that across many? the UK. Wow. There are that many. There was wow. 350 about six or seven years ago. And uh-huh. under my understanding, it has increased because mm-hmm. young carers is a big issue in the UK. In Australia, they're probably the, the second most advanced. So they have partial legal rights in certain regions, but they also do things like a bursary system at the university level because they realize, and I mean, this realization is across the board for all young care researchers, that it has a heavy burden and a heavy penalty on uh, young carers' education. But they're the only ones that I'm aware of that have actually instituted a national bursary program specific to young carers up to the age of 25. Did you say bursar? Bursary, or for us, that's what we refer to as scholarship, bursary program. Okay, I see. (laughs) You have to translate for the American audience, too. There you go, there you go. (laughs) So a bursary program, they have a scholarship program. Okay, Yeah. that's awesome. Yeah, it is awesome. And um, we have none of that here. So even even the the caregiver programs we have here, well, Canada is, is tricky compared to the UK, because the UK has a more, it's a truly socialized care of medicine, medical model in that it's a nationalized system. So yeah. Anything that happens gets rolled out right off the bat across the board. But in Uh Canada, our healthcare is provincially operated. So different provinces have different plans, have different procedures. So it's a little bit of a nightmare at the national level to actually affect national change. That's interesting. Because it's in the jurisdiction of each province. So Uh you're kind of fighting an uphill battle with each province. 
So granted, we've seen some recent interest in Ontario, but it's really exclusive to Ontario. I mean, there are some rumblings in BC, but really it's only a very specific part of BC on Vancouver Island where there's actually two young care programs. But the rest of BC is pretty quiet on this issue of young cares. And the other provinces, as far as I'm aware, are largely quiet with the exception of one or two researchers who have reached out to me saying, you know, I think this is an issue in our line of work too. I mean, we're not necessarily researching it in a dedicated fashion, but We've read your work and we think that these kids exist on the periphery of our services, which are usually tailored to some other related, marginalized or vulnerable population. It's interesting because there's no overarching authority like in the U.S. There's the federal government and then there's the states. So the equivalent uh, really doesn't exist in Canada. And then the U.K. is a whole other kettle of fish. It's a whole other. Yeah. So how does it manifest in a young carer's life? What happens? Oh, wow. Well, um. I can speak very quickly to me and then to the kids that I've yeah, interviewed because sure. okay. obviously, you know, when you do research and you have previous experience, I'm fully open to the fact that I came into this from previous experience and I was and do have a clear bias for why I'm doing this research. So, of uh-huh. course, some of the questions I asked were based on experiences that I had because I wanted to see if the commonality was there and also based on similar questions and lines of inquiry raised by other leading young care researchers. Mm -hmm. So essentially what I found with me was the isolation, which was massive, social isolation, not being able to really talk about it with others, feeling like you were burdening people if you were. And then secondly, just the massive, I would say for me, anxiety juggling, education and work and caregiving, because it was always those three things at the same time, with the exception of that one rare year where I was unemployed. But especially the past five years in particular, this was a pretty busy five years. So I just finished my PhD last year, Mm -hmm. and I just started a new job, which I love, but (laughs) teaching full-time at a university out here. And during that last three years while I've been working here and finishing my PhD, my grandmother had three surgeries, was hospitalized for, I think, cumulatively six months, and then in between each hospitalization, and she can't speak any English. So anytime she was in the hospital, I had to be there. My mom, when she could take days off, and then the in-between, when we'd bring her home, then we'd have to arrange home care, and then the issues with home care, which is a separate nightmare. And then just, you know, medicines and dealing with falls, because there were falls, and then head injuries from the falls, and it was just, it was a lot. So there was a lot of anxiety, Mm -hmm. and probably low-level depression during the the more difficult times when she was really in and out of the hospital and there was times where they told us that you know she wouldn't survive and and she always pulled through because she's one stubborn bat um <laughs> the, 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 literally the definition of that old tough greek lady <laughs> you gotta love her so uh-huh. she will not go anywhere uh, which, great but yeah. you know she's got quite the lengthy health record i remember having my computer trying to write at the hospital mm. and that's never easy when you're in shared rooms with mm-hmm. three four other people and mm-hmm. trying to find plugs to keep your laptop charged, dealing mm-hmm. with your job at this thing. It was just, a, I feel like those three years just kind of flew by. Like, I don't even remember what happened. I had zero time for a social life. Mm-hmm. I'd be exhausted and just completely run down. I was constantly getting sick because I'm sure my immunity was just done yeah. from just the stress of it all. And mm-hmm. then you just kind of want to retreat. At least I did. I didn't want to be around anyone. I was just so overwhelmed with things and just trying to, you know, do the best I could in my job. 
finish my PhD and manage all this healthcare, what it felt like a full-time caregiving role while I had my other full-time job and full-time PhD. I, just, yeah. I was kind of losing my mind a little bit. Um, <laughs> you think? A little, little bit, just a little bit, yeah, so pretty much. So, you know, obviously I knew the experiences would be different for younger kids, but what I initially wanted to do was just let's get them together in a group because I also know that, you know, as a researcher, when you're interviewing young kids, there's obviously a power differential in any research experience. But when you're an adult, granted, I'd like to think I look a little younger, but still, um, <laughs> you know, I, there's still a, a very palpable age difference between myself and these 15-year-olds. Yeah. And I know that a, a smart strategy in terms of research is when you're using vulnerable populations, particularly youth, is to use focus groups. So uh-huh. I arranged focus groups based on using um, nonprofit groups who were providing them programming. So I went through the existing young care programs. And this is and in, these the, kids in, in Canada? In Toronto. Right? Yeah, in, oh, okay. in southern Ontario. So I was going to ask, did you have a hard time finding these kids? Well, and that's the biggest thing. They're usually, they are a hidden population. So I knew the wisest step would be to go through these programs who I knew existed mm-hmm. because I was the first thing I did was, was anyone talking about these kids in Canada? And the only people that were at that point were community organizations who were struggling to help these kids, mm-hmm. struggling on nothing in terms of funding, bare bones yeah. funding. A lot of their own work, a lot of unpaid labor and volunteer work, which was obviously they could not float those programs without volunteers. So I went through them, and that was one of the first things I did was I talked, I did interviews with the people running these programs, and then asked, do you mind if I interview the kids, and then you know talk to their parents, see if it's okay, and then we did focus groups based on the different programs, mm-hmm. and also by age. So the, one of the programs had a naturally younger group, so they were roughly 15 and 16-year-olds, and then the other group had more older young carers, so like finishing high school. So we had those starting high school and those finishing. And you find the same kind of struggles. It was the same, essentially everything that I'd experienced, but at a slightly different level in terms of almost a little worse because kids can be a little more cruel (laughs) than young adults. You know, these kids were really terrified of talking about it. And not only because they were worried about being removed from their families, then that's actually a real fear. After the break, why youth caregivers are sometimes removed from their homes and how caring for someone when you're young affects your present and future. That's coming up after this word from our sponsor. Support for the AgeWise podcast is brought to you by Hero, a company committed to taking the pain out of medication management for you and your loved ones. Let pill boxes, missed doses, repeated phone calls, and trips to the pharmacy become a thing of the past with Hero's three-part system. The device sorts and dispenses doses at the push of a button. The app tells you if mom has taken her pills and alerts you if she hasn't. And Hero Fill notifies you when refills are running low, delivering meds directly to mom's store. Hero, a dose of calm for the whole family. One of the articles I read from, uh, I believe it was Saul Becker, um, had said that there was some statistics of, of how many of young carers have actually been removed from their families. I can't remember it off the top of my head, but it happens. So there is a real fear of an official welfare intervention. And indeed, when I had talked to one of the BC program directors, he had intervened to emancipate a couple young carers and to actually remove them from their homes because it was considered an abusive situation for the child. 
Wow, so there, there it is, wow. and, and I mean this is not this is a very small percentage that we know of of young carers. So by no means are all young carers in what we call parentified or very abusive and malfunctioning situations. That's mm-hmm. that's certainly not the case for most young carers. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, there are contentious elements, but it's because there is an illness or a disability that needs to be managed, and there is a gap in the provisioning of that care. But otherwise, these are healthy family dynamics that are just struggling to make ends meet, essentially. But there are indeed cases that are, unfortunately, usually they're tied to situations of parental mental illness, substance abuse issues, mm-hmm. and really serious mental illnesses. So, I mean, it happens, and we have it documented, but indeed, even I saw evidence of that. And, mm-hmm. you know, they wouldn't want to talk about it. They felt there was instances of bullying, and probably one of the most noticeable things for me. And I just put this in the one of my recent papers, the Young Care Penalty, but overwhelmingly what I found in these interviews was penalties. And it's not to say that they didn't obviously have benefits from their caregiving. These kids are empathetic. They are much more open-minded and responsible and caring because they have to be than a lot of their peers. And these are very good life skills to have. Yeah. But at the same time, it was just an overwhelming preponderance of negative consequences. So that's why I chose to really focus on those for my most recent paper. And essentially what we saw is that you ask the kids, how does your caregiving affect you? The same question you asked me. Mm. And they'll tell you the same thing. And they'll start telling you, oh, no, it doesn't. I'm fine. Mm. And if you just stop there, okay, fine, right? But the more you probe, which is exactly what I did, that's when you start hearing, it's actually not fine. So you hear how they're getting in trouble in school because they're constantly late or they're falling asleep in class because they were up the night before with their care receiver Mm -hmm. um, or they had to go to an immediate hospital appointment or they had to stay home and take care of someone else when two other people were at the hospital. There was always some sort of situation. And they didn't want to tell teachers about it because then when I went down that line of reasoning, teachers were very non-receptive to it. And I heard this from multiple young carers that there might have been an open-minded, shall we say, principal or vice principal Mm-hmm. or guidance counselor. Mm-hmm. But on the whole, they would tell me pretty disheartening experiences where they might tell a teacher and, and the teacher would say, okay, well, you know, that's an excuse for the smaller things, but not really the big things. Mm. There was a lot of pushback mm-hmm. or just not really showing that understanding of the situation mm. or not budging to accommodate them. It sounds like those teachers need an education. Oh, 100%. And that's one of the things I write about in my dissertation is that this was a big issue, is that they need the training. And the funny thing is, when you talk to educators, because the rest of my family is in education, but at the elementary level, they'll tell you the same thing. Every teacher I've talked to is like, absolutely, we see these kids all the time. I'm like, oh my gosh, well, what do you, what do, you do about it? Right. Well, there's nothing we can do. It's not in our job. We don't have the resources. And there's also, they're afraid of almost legal repercussions yeah. by getting involved. And there's that red tape and that bureaucratic process that really prevents, especially the big city educators, from doing anything. And it was interesting that when I talked to the programs operating in Vancouver Island, which was much smaller bureaucracy, and they were really able to get change much faster than here we would ever get done in Toronto. And you would see that they were able to get things done and work with teachers and get programming in the schools and things that we could never get done here because there are just so many layers of red tape and nobody knows where to go to get anything done. Mm. I found that phrase really interesting, young carer penalty, that you coined or has been coined that builds upon the gendered care penalty experienced by adult women when performing care work. Young care or penalty. Could you expand on that a little bit? Absolutely. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, absolutely. 
for me, because, you know, I read a lot of feminist reproductive research, and indeed that was kind of the framework that I was coming from, That mm-hmm. and obviously people that look into the care penalty who have written about this as it relates to adult women have documented this for decades. Mm-hmm. The real care penalty that affects, well, largely your uh, human capital development and your options for work and your options for even your social lives, and even studies today will show that women are consistently experiencing this penalty even when they're working full-time and even when their husbands might be picking up on some aspects of family labor, so to speak. But it's usually much different aspects than women take care of. So women are still doing that basic reproductive labor, the caregiving labor, but while I was, men will do more cleaning around the house, perhaps, mm-hmm. or they might do more grocery shopping or things like this. But really, the lion's share of that personal care, that really difficult mm-hmm. caregiving labor is still being done overwhelmingly by women, unless there are no women around. And then obviously, it has to fall on an available man. Right. But yeah, and, and what I found was that, yeah, obviously, there were some differences maturational and and age-based differences that made the care penalty uniquely different for young carers, there were a lot of commonalities. Mm. And unfortunately, because it starts so young, you have to ask yourself, and what we haven't really been looking at, because there are no long-term studies on young carers. That's incredible. Yeah, there are studies that interview adults. So there's retrospective interview studies Uh that look at people who are adults now and were young carers in the past. And you see the same things that we anticipate will happen now, right, based on our interviews with young carers. That, yes, it kind of launched them into this caregiving role that almost like a caretaker syndrome, and it has extended into their future. And they almost automatically take on this role in new and extended relationships going forward. Oh, interesting. Wow. And it becomes yeah. part of your identity. And the younger you start that caregiving process, the more firmly it becomes part of what you feel is who you are, right? Because mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. anything, when you learn something as a child, it's so much easier. When you learn a language, when you learn how to do anything as a child, you pick it up so quickly. Right. And it becomes really part of you. Mm-hmm. But when you learn that when you're older, you might not necessarily pick that up and internalize it as part of who you are. But it's you see that the earlier the caregiving is, uh, the more likely you are to extend that caregiving role. So while we don't have these studies now, I mean, we're hoping to start a longitudinal study right now. We're actually launching a study here in Canada with a couple other researchers. And our plan is indeed that this will be the baseline and we're going to follow these young cares because we anticipate that this is what we're going to find based on what we've seen in retrospective interviews and what most people's experiences will tell you that this is kind of how it happens. You got launched into this role and it just sticks with you. Yeah. It's interesting that you raised the issue of the lack of funding for this sort of support. And I'm wondering if there is a racial component to this as well, because things often play out along racial and economic lines. Is that a factor in funding? You know, it's not worth it sort of thing. For sure. And here's the interesting thing. One of the first things I did was look at the data. And what the data showed (laughs) when you're looking at just markers of, for example, visible minority status and immigrant status, Mm -hmm. I didn't find a relationship per se. It was more white Canadian citizens of actually higher income levels who were providing the majority of care. The higher income Mm -hmm. makes sense if you look at it in terms of dual income and multi-generational, multi-income families, right? Mm -hmm. Because obviously they have to work out of necessity. Mm -hmm. And that's why the kids then get conscripted into caregiving because mom and dad are at work. They can't afford to provide this care, right? Right, right. But at the same time, there's also the issue of misreporting and Mm underreporting. So people from families that have certain cultural orientations to caregiving and higher notions of filial piety and taking care of 
your families, which, of course, in Greek families, that is mm-hmm. like that. In, in many, um, <laughs> well, Yeah, right? And that's the issue is that we don't report these things. So if we were to do a survey on this, and a lot of people are just not documenting it because they don't necessarily consider what they're doing caregiving. And also studies have shown that people feel uncomfortable terming themselves a caregiver. So adult studies have shown that adults feel uncomfortable designating themselves a caregiver on some surveys just because of the mere terminology almost rubs them the wrong way because it feels kind of cold and impartial, Mm -hmm. whereas they just see this as part of their everyday family duties. And of course, if you look at, I mean, there's um, Dodson and Dicker did over a decade of qualitative research in the States Mm. on low income and racialized young carers. Mm. They didn't term them young carers, but they looked at how racialized and low income girls were taking on massive reproductive caregiving labor because of pure financial reasons mm-hmm. out of poverty. So we know that this is an issue, but we're not seeing it necessarily reflected in larger data. And often there's misreporting too, right? So parents are reporting on behalf of their kids. What kid ever fills out a national survey? Right. right? So it's often the parent reporting right. for their kid. Right. And there's a very clear bias for a lot of parents not to report that for yeah. the obvious fear of intervention, right? Mm -hmm. So you can really only take so much from the data while recognizing there is a lot of reason why the numbers could be biased. Uh But absolutely, poverty, cultural factors, whether you internalize that role as just, you know, natural, ordinary duties of family life, and you don't see it as being caregiving, so then you're not going to talk about yourself in that term, and you're not going to raise it as an issue. You just kind of keep it to yourself and Uh just consider it a family issue. Right, right. Vivian, you just gave a presentation on young carers in San Diego. I was invited by uh, my, my very wonderful American researchers who I adore. There's not many in, in the U.S. who are doing young care research, but let me tell you, I, you Americans, I do love the ones that I know. <laughs> wonderful, wonderful ladies. So, and I'm going to name a couple in particular who okay. are really doing some amazing things. Sharon Hamill, who was actually part of the conference planning process for that conference. So she works at San Diego, and she really spearheaded this panel because she had stumbled upon another young care researcher a couple years before and didn't even know that they existed. So she's been doing this research for years and had no idea that there were other Americans doing similar research. And there's only a handful. Mm-hmm. And she met one of my friends that I met at the conference circuit years ago. Actually, in San Francisco, I met her the first time, Melinda Cavanaugh, who's brilliant. And these two women are just doing some of the most cutting edge young care research I've read about in a while. But it's so quiet. Nobody really talks about it. And they're very modest. So, you know, they don't have a social media presence. They don't really put their stuff out there. So it's hard to find it. But they have really amazing programs that they're launching in high schools, trying to train peer support young care workers. Yeah. In the case of California with Sharon. And with Melinda, I mean, she's doing some fascinating research on biomedical markers, how young carers are affected medically. She's doing a sleep study right now, for example, with young carers. Just fascinating research that, to my knowledge, is not being done anywhere else. Mm -hmm. So they just kind of invited me and said, do you want to be our token Canadian and and tell us what's, (laughs) I'm always happy to be their token Canadian. And that was the running joke about the whole conference. So I just kind of did an overview of essentially what's going on in Canada, where are we at, what does the research show, 
what are the numbers and what are the problems to moving forward. So I didn't focus on any of my specific research per Mm -hmm. se, but just like a generalized view. Mm -hmm. Was it a large audience? Was it caregivers or? Well, it it was a palliative care conference. Interesting. So yeah, we didn't really even know if we'd have an audience. And we joked about that in the beginning. We're like, what if nobody comes? Um, Because this is kind of, we were on the first day in the morning and most people are not looking at that end of the age spectrum, right? It's a palliative care conference. Uh So, but we were surprised at how many people were there. And the larger consensus was, yeah, but we know kids that are doing this work. So we're so happy to see that you guys are actually studying this. And you always hear this when you talk to, especially community workers, people working in healthcare, that they know these kids exist. They've seen them either with the care receiver, bringing them to appointments, accessing the services with the parent who's receiving care, for example. But they didn't know that, and you always hear this, they didn't know that there was actually research being done on it. And they didn't know that there was this whole literature that really dominates in the UK, but that is growing across an increasing number of countries. And that, for example, every two years, there's essentially a young care conference. So I went to it a couple years ago, and and we just got accepted for this upcoming one in May in Oslo. And this is like the whole world of young care researchers come together. Oh, that's But most people... Yeah, don't know that these conferences exist or that there's even people doing research in the area. Right. So I think that was the most exciting part, just seeing people be like, oh, my God, like, thank you. We're so happy people are talking about this. Mm -hmm. Well, if there are young people listening to this in Canada, what do you say to them about how to cope or where to turn? I would say, one, talk to your doctor particularly because in the States, for example, I don't know if you know this, but the larger movement around young care has really started with pediatricians because they noticed that kids were coming in really stressed out, exhibiting a lot of symptoms oh, of depression, anxiety, mm-hmm. you know, self-harm. I found these things too, suicidal ideation among my young carers. And only by asking questions did they find out it was because they were in these caring roles. And that's the problem that most pediatricians are kind of stopping the conversation too short. And I even just wrote very briefly with a fellow pediatrician here in Canada who's noticed this exact same problem. And we just did a really quick call to the Canadian Medical Association, put out a quick commentary there saying, like, it's that easy. It's just asking this question because this is happening and pediatricians are in a prime position to really notice these kids and then direct them to at least immediate services and supports that can help them. And secondarily, just look online because there are programs. There's four programs right now that are really, on the whole, providing dedicated young care programs. We've noticed very recently in Ontario, there's between 12 to 15 who are just starting to now create programs, but it's still just getting off the ground. So it's not at the point where they can really open the floodgates and and let scores of children in, but Mm -hmm. they're starting, right? Mm -hmm. So really, if we keep finding people that need the support, then it gives us more and more ammunition to just try to get more funding, go to the government, show how many kids actually need these supports. Mm-hmm. And talking to teachers, a lot of them feel uncomfortable or really going to your principals, going to the higher levels and saying, this is what's happening at home. I really could benefit from some sort of individualized educational plan. And I know that sounds like a fancy term, but it's, mm-hmm. all you need to do is say the words and just ask for options. Because go to the top. Just, go to the top. Go to the top. Because quite frankly, at the top, there's been more of an awareness and more of a training on how to help these kids. Whereas regular teachers are just overburdened and they've been dealing with their own cutbacks and their own, you know, intensification of their jobs. So right. I get why they're stressed out. 
but go to the top and at least there is the option of creating individual education plans because a lot of these kids were at the risk of dropping out and were failing. And even in, among my sample, you know, they'd have to take night school and they'd have to do all these extra courses to bring up grades mm. because they weren't high enough to get into college or university. And they only started to notice this within the last two years. So that was the other interesting part, that when you ask kids that are really, well, younger, beginning their high school careers, they say, oh, everything's fine, because they don't notice the accruing educational disadvantage until the last two, especially last year, makes that clear, because they're applying to college and university. And that application process was what makes that disadvantage all the clearer. Yeah, I can imagine. And they realized that they just don't have the extracurricular activities. They don't have all the extras you need in addition to good grades, which are already struggling because Uh they're constantly exhausted and they have no time to do homework because they're too busy helping out at home. Right. I guess the personal statement on all of those applications would be how being a carer changed my life. (laughs) Right? I know. But you don't want to hear another interesting thing. I just read a recent study by a a researcher out in the UK. In the UK, they just created a process when you're applying to university, you can check a box that says, are you a young care? I mean, yeah, who's to say it's necessarily going to do anything for you? Uh But at least they've recognized that this is some sort of marker that should be accounted for. But the problem is, when you actually talk to the kids, as this, I believe her name was Lynn Kettle, Mm -hmm. did, Mm -hmm. is that they said, we don't want to put that down in writing because what if they don't want to accept us because they think we're going to be too busy and not being able to do our work? You know what I mean? That's not something you'd even consider because you put that in there to help the kids and Mm self-identify. But then the kids themselves are smart enough to go, well, maybe this will look unfavorably for us during the application process. So they don't want to self-identify. Yeah. So for people who are listening to this, what do you suggest they do to rally support? You're a very powerful voice, but you're one voice. So if we were to issue a call to arms, what would it be? Just talk about it. Talk about it with as many people as you can. It's like that, you know, strategy for how to help people to vote. Just talk to 10 of your friends and tell them to vote and tell them to tell another 10 friends. Mm -hmm. That kind of word of mouth thing where Uh you really have to just get the word out because we're at a point right now where we're still relatively silent on the issue. But when you talk to people, with the exception of, you know, people that are constrained to offer more resources, in my experience, but they care and they want to help. And, you know, we've had... Some politicians express some interest and want to help us apply for funding opportunities with the community programs, not with the researchers per se, but we help them put mm-hmm. in these applications mm-hmm. so we can get them more money because mm-hmm. we work closely with these nonprofit groups. Mm-hmm. But just really talking about it because there has to be a point when the tidal turn. And yes, we're saving in the interim from healthcare costs, right? Mm-hmm. But what if these kids are not actually able to build upon their human capital? If we care about high-skilled workers and having the best knowledgeable worker base at our Canadian level, mm-hmm. well, we need these kids in school and having the opportunity to build their education and to build their skills. Mm-hmm. But they can't do that if they're caregiving. So there's this fundamental oxymoron that we're not appreciating, at least at the highest level, that, yes, you're cutting costs this way, but it's going to catch up. And it's going to catch up in a, a multiplicity of ways. One of the women I was interviewing said they are going to be future users of the mental health system. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, you're you're going to have future social and health care costs for the caregiver themselves, Mm -hmm. if not immediate. Mm -hmm. But then at the same time, if we're not building the strongest workforce, well, then that's going to have a larger macroeconomic impact 
at the Canadian level. Because mm-hmm. if we're not building, this is, we're talking 1.25 million mm-hmm. just between the ages of 15 to 24. And wow. we don't know anything about any kids under the age of 15. Wow. And those are the ones that even whose parents or themselves identified as such in a survey. Imagine how many more there are when you consider the very real reasons people have to not report Mm -hmm. (laughs) that this is happening, Mm -hmm. right? Listen, I think you need to run for office. Forget this teaching. (laughs) (laughs) People have said this to me, but I don't think I would be a very good politician. I'm a little too honest. Um, (laughs) Sorry to all my politician friends out there. I tease. Who knows? Maybe maybe someday. I don't know. (laughs) But I love teaching, so that's a a catch-22. So before we close, what sort of last thoughts do you have for youth carers? What do you want them to know? Well, I guess just that they're not alone. You're not alone. Many people have been there, and usually other caregivers are really keen on helping other caregivers, and that's what's really great. There's this really strong community of caregiver support, and even among the young carers, right? So there's so many opportunities. Just You never know if you reach out. You might find people that are like you. And to ask for help, don't hold it in, don't be ashamed. It's better to put it out there because you never know what supports you're going to be provided. That could change your life for the better. We've been speaking with Dr. Vivian Stamatopoulos, a professor at the University of Ontario Institute of Technology and a researcher who focuses on child and youth-based caregiving. We'll have links on the AgeWise website to some resources that you can tap into for young folks in Canada in particular who are looking for programs so you can get some help. Vivian, thank you so much for being on the show and thanks for the amazing work that you're doing. Oh, thank you for having me. And you too. (laughs) You're getting the word out there, so it's much appreciated. Bye. (laughs) Bye. That's it for today. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode. In the meantime, if you like this show, if you're getting something out of it, I want you to tell your friends about it because I want everyone to know you're not alone. Your stories matter and your voices have power. So share this with your friends. Share the love and subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. The AgeWise podcast is produced by me and it's distributed on the nationally syndicated Speak Up Talk radio network. I'm Jana Panaritis. See you next time. And remember, every caregiver has a story. I want to hear yours.